As you return to your seats, if you would, take your Bibles and open with me to Revelation chapter 11. Revelation chapter 11. If you picked up a Bible from the back table, you'll find Revelation 11 beginning on page 1034. Revelation chapter 11. I think I've thought this at the beginning of uh, every week when I turn to the next section of Revelation that uh, we're going to be covering, but I really, really mean it this time. It is, uh, I think, the most complicated text we've come to so far. So, uh, with that said, page 1034, Revelation chapter 11, would you stand one more time just to hear the reading of this chapter, God's Holy Word. As he was inspired by the Holy Spirit, John writes, Then I was given a measuring rod like a staff, and I was told, Rise and measure the temple of God and the altar and those who worship there, but do not measure the court outside the temple. Leave that out. For it is given over to the nations, and they will trample the holy city for forty-two months." And I will grant authority to my two witnesses, and they will prophesy for 1,260 days, clothed in sackcloth. These are the two olive trees and the two lampstands that stand before the Lord of the earth. And if anyone would harm them, fire pours from their mouth and consumes their foes. If anyone would harm them, this is how he is doomed to be killed. They have the power to shut the skies, that no rain may fall during the days of their prophesying, and they have power over the waters." to turn them into blood, and to strike the earth with every kind of plague as often as they desire. And when they have finished their testimony, the beast that rises from the bottomless pit will make war on them and conquer them and kill them. And their bodies will lie in the street of the great city that symbolically is called Sodom and Egypt, where their Lord was crucified. For three and a half days, some of the peoples and tribes and languages and nations will gaze at their dead bodies and refuse to let them be placed in a tomb. And those who dwell on the earth will rejoice over them and make merry and exchange presents, because the two prophets had been a torment to those who dwell on the earth. But after the three and a half days, a breath of life from God entered them, and they stood upon their feet, and great fear fell on those who saw them. Then they heard a loud voice from heaven saying to them, Come up here. And they went up to heaven in a cloud, and their enemies watched them. And at that hour there was a great earthquake, and a tenth of the city fell. Seven thousand people were killed in the earthquake, and the rest were terrified and gave glory to the God of heaven. The second woe has passed. Behold, the third woe is soon to come. Then the seventh angel blew his trumpet, and there were loud voices in heaven, saying, The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of His Christ, and He shall reign forever and ever. And the twenty-four elders who sit on their thrones before God fell on their faces and worshipped God, saying, We give thanks to you, Lord God Almighty, who is and who was, for you have taken your great power and begun to reign. The, nation, the nations raged, but your wrath came, and the time for the dead to be judged, and for rewarding your servants, the prophets and saints, and those who fear your name, both great, small and great, and for destroying the destroyers of the earth. Then God's temple in heaven was opened, and the ark of His covenant was seen within His temple. There were flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, an earthquake, and heavy hail. Would you remain standing as we pray? Father, this morning we 
come to your word acknowledging that at points it is quite difficult. Even Peter acknowledged that the things that Paul wrote were at times hard to understand. So we ask that you would give us wisdom today. We ask that you would help us to understand and love your word and obey your word. We pray that this word will change us, that it will make us people who are eager to obey the Lord Jesus Christ. We started the service reading a psalm which talks about bringing our offering into your court. Lord, you tell us in the new covenant our offering is to give our lives to you as a living sacrifice which is holy and acceptable to you. So I pray for that this morning. Would you yours use your word to make us a people who even more so offer our lives to you as living sacrifices for our good and for the honor of Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. It was the best of times. It was the worst of times. It was the age of wisdom. It was the age of foolishness. It was the season of light. It was the season of darkness. It was the spring of hope. It was the winter of despair. This, of course, is how Charles Dickens opens his novel, A Tale of Two Cities. With these opening lines, one of the things he's showing is the extreme and perhaps seemingly contradictory or contrasting extremes that, that existed in, in France and Europe at the time. You would have extreme suffering and poverty in another place, extreme riches and ease and leisure. And as I've studied Revelation 11 this week, I've thought these opening lines I feel like are just a perfect description of this chapter in a number of ways. For one, Revelation 11 does have two cities mentioned in it. You'll see the first one in verse 2. But do not measure the court outside the temple. Leave that out, for it is given over to the nations, and they will trample the holy city. City number 1. City number 2 is in verse 8. And their dead bodies will lie in the street of the great city. That is symbolically called Sodom and Egypt. These two cities, I think, each represent in the text one uh, the people of God, and one, the people who oppose the Lord Jesus Christ. We'll get to the details later, but it's not just that the chapter has two cities in it. You'll also find in the text that there are extremes mentioned. Uh, as we read through the chapter, we see things said about the church, about the people of God, that seem almost contradictory. In fact, as I go through the points this morning, you'll, you'll feel almost as if, as if I'm saying one thing and then taking it back with another. This is going to happen, but this is also going to happen. They'll feel contradictory, but they're not. We'll explain them this morning. They're simply extreme contrasting realities, much like Dickens wrote about in his novel. The problem, though, with seeing these realities, these even contrasting realities in the text, is that the text is confusing, isn't it? This is one of those texts where the messages, they're just clothed in difficult, complex images. For example... Uh, in this chapter, I think that this chapter speaks much about the church. In fact, I think that's the main point of the chapter, to tell us about the church, what the church, the people of God, will experience in this age all the way until the end. And yet you read the first, well, you read the whole chapter, you never find the word church mentioned. In fact, the word saints isn't even referenced until verse 18. 
So why is it, if, if this chapter is about the saints, if this chapter is about the church, that you don't find that, but instead you find reference to a temple, to a court outside the temple, to a holy city, to two witnesses, to two olive trees, to two lampstands? I think the answer is that these things are given to us as metaphors for the church. And if then we ask this question, then why, if the Lord wants to teach us about the church, would He not just say the church? Why would He give us metaphors like temple, outside court, holy city, witnesses, lampstands, olive trees? And I think the reason actually is, is linked very tightly to what John Winfrey mentioned in Sunday school this morning. That the Lord not only gives us truths in the Scripture, He does that. So, so they're going to find... The statements I'll make today in describing what I think are the points of this text will perhaps find those statements made verbatim or very, very close to them at other places in the Bible. But one of the benefits of apocalyptic literature and one of the benefits of the book of Revelation specifically is that it gives us those truths clothed in images that are not easily forgotten. It gives us those truths clothed in pictures or, or, or symbols that, that affect us, that move our hearts. So, for example, think, think back to Revelation 5. We all know, I think before we ever thought through Revelation 5, we all know Jesus Christ has done everything necessary to bring about God's full work of judgment and salvation. We would all testify to that, wouldn't we? But one of the reasons God gave us Revelation 5 is He doesn't want that statement, Jesus Christ has done everything necessary to bring about God's full work of judgment and salvation, merely to remain there. But He also wants us to give us this powerful image of the one sitting on the throne holding a scroll, the work of his judgment and salvation that cannot be enacted unless one is worthy. And all of earth and above the earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them, no one being found worthy and John weeping because God's work of judgment and salvation cannot be carried out until he turns and sees the lion of the tribe of Judah who is a lamb who is slain, who walks over and takes the scroll out of the hand of the one who is seated on the throne so that all of heaven and myriads and myriads of angels bow down and worship not only the one who is seated on the throne but the lamb himself. See, it's the same image, the same truth, clothed in a complex image, a difficult image, but one, I think, that affects us deeply. I think that's the same thing going on here. The reason that Revelation 11 is given to us in such complex imagery and, and complicated symbols is, is, is so that it might take anchor in our hearts even more deeply, so that we not only know these truths, but we can attach these images, these scenes to these truths so then this morning, I simply want to say three things about the church and one thing about the world in this age. So from, this, from the time of Christ's first coming until His second coming, at the point of His second coming, I just want to lay out a few realities about the church in this age, and then finally, one reality about the world. The first reality about the church that I want to note from this text is this. The church will be protected by God and persecuted by the world. You can see why I say they're, they're seemingly contradicting realities. There's extreme contrast here. The church will be protected by God and persecuted by the world. In chapter 10, John was recommissioned to prophesy, to preach this message. Well, in chapter 11 now, John begins to get his hands dirty. The Lord calls him to do something. The first thing he calls him to do is, is to measure something. We read in verses 1 and 2. 
Then I was given a measuring rod like a staff, and I was told, Rise and measure the temple of God, and the altar, and those who worship there. But do not measure the court outside the temple. Leave that out. For it is given over to the nations, and they will trample the holy city for forty-two months. Now before I dive into what I think that represents, let me just say very clearly, I don't know anyone who takes every element of this chapter literally. I don't think there's a person or a commentator out there. Some take a lot of the images very literally, and I don't think they should. I think that's a misreading of Revelation, which is highly symbolic. But I don't know anyone that takes every image literally. I mean, if you do, how do you, how do you begin to describe verse 5, where you have individuals pouring out fire from their mouths, consuming their foes? Most people pull back and say, I think that's figurative. Right? Well, in the same way, I think verses 1 and 2 are figurative. And I think the temple here and the court surrounding the temple is just a metaphor for the church. Here's why. Let me give you a couple of reasons. One, before you get to the book of Revelation, the temple elsewhere in the Bible is used as a metaphor for the church. So there are other places the Bible talks about the church and pictures us as a temple. So 1 Corinthians chapter 6, for example, uh, we are, we're told that our body is a temple of the Holy Spirit. Or in Ephesians 2, 19-22, the church is being pictured as being built into a temple. Why? Because God exists among us. Even as the temple was the dwelling place of God in the Old Covenant, so now in the New Covenant, God dwells with and among His people. Second, even in the book of Revelation, as we go on, sometimes the temple is elsewhere used to communicate truths about the people of God. So, for example, you may remember when we first started this series, though it's been a number of weeks and, and months ago now, one of the things I referenced was that numbers are symbolic in the book of Revelation. And, and they, they connote truths. So, for example, the number 12, I mentioned this from the first week, the number 12 and multiples of 12 are used throughout the book of Revelation to represent the people of God. Just by no mistake that there were 12 tribes of Israel or 12 apostles. It's no mistake that the elders surrounding the throne who represent the people of God, there are 24 of them. There's no mistake that when the Lord is representing His people, the redeemed of all the earth, He numbers them as 144,000. 12,000 times 12. Well, when you get to the end of the book, we have this scene where... The heavenly city, the new Jerusalem, the new creation is now descending from heaven. So this is the new heavens, the new earth. This is, uh, this is God's purified and redeemed world, and it's pictured as if it's one big holy of holies. The section in the temple where God's presence dwelt. What's interesting is they give the measurements of the temple. Listen to some of the measurements. The city was 12,000 stadia. The wall... 144 cubits. The wall was built with 12 stones. It had 12 gates made of, I'll let you guess how many pearls. 12. The message clearly by the end of the book of Revelation is that when the temple comes down, God is with His people. Do you see? This is, this is one of the longings of the storyline of the whole Bible is how can a holy God exist and be present with an utterly unholy people? By the time we get to the end of the book, the end of the Bible, what we see is that God is present with His people. Even as His presence was in the Holy of Holies in the temple, now His presence is over the whole world as God's redeemed people are with Him. So, 
For this reason, then, I think the temple, both in other parts of the Bible and by the end of the book, is representative of the people of God, so it is here. Well, then the question is, what does it mean when John measures the temple and then does not measure the outer courts of the temple? Let me talk about one more element, and then I'll answer that. We're told at the end of verse 2 that this outer part of the temple is given over to the nations where they were trampled for 42 months. What's significant about that time period? 42 months. What's interesting is it comes up again and again and again in the book of Revelation. It's not always 42 months. Sometimes it's 1,260 days, which is the same time period, three and a half years. Sometimes it's three and a half years. Sometimes it's listed as, and this sounds weird, but I, I think you'll get it, times, time, and half a time. If times are two, time, one more, and half a time, it's three and a half years, isn't it? So this period of three and a half years, whether it's listed as 42 months or 1,260 days or time, times, and half a time, this period of three and a half years is found throughout the book. Well, where in the world does this come from? Well, it seems to come from the book of Daniel. In Daniel, in chapter 7 and 8 and chapter 12, there's references to three and a half times, or on one occasion, times, time, and half a time. In the book of Daniel, what this three and a half years represented was a time when the people of God would suffer. A time when it looked like evil was triumphing, and yet it would be a limited amount of time. In fact, this became such a deal within uh, Jewish literature and, and, and conversation that whenever they wanted to reference a time period or a time when it looks like the people of God was going to suffer, but it would be a restricted time period, they would talk about it lasting three and a half years. Whether it literally lasted three and a half years or not, the, the symbol became so representative of a time of suffering under evil where the people of God are suffering, but for a restricted time, that it just became part of the vocabulary. Three and a half years. So any first century reader who would have seen this reference to 42 months or 1,060 days or three and a half years or times, time, and half a time would have seen it and understood this as a restricted period of time, a time restricted by God, where the people of God will suffer and it seems that evil is triumphing. So with those things in place then, what in the world finally does it mean when John measures the temple and then does not measure the outer court so that it might be given over to the nations where they would trample the holy city for 42 months? Here's what I think Jesus is saying. He's sending us two messages. The first one is that the people of God will be protected by God in this age, right? The first part of my point, the church will be protected by God. They'll be preserved. In, in other words, I think it's the same message that we found in chapter 7. Do you remember when, when the Lord was opening the seven seals? Between the sixth seal and the seventh seal, there was a delay, Perhaps not a time delay, but just a delay in the text. We were ready for the seventh seal to be opened, but it wasn't. We had chapter 7. Well, so here we've already seen six trumpets blown, and we're ready for the seventh, but there's a delay, isn't there? Well, what message did the Lord send in chapter 7? In chapter 7, he was sending this message, that though there's judgment to come, his people will be preserved. Though the, the seventh seal would, would speak of the end of all things, or the judgment of the earth, his people would be protected he showed it in chapter 7 by putting a mark on the foreheads so that we can say of ourselves, if your faith is in Jesus Christ, no matter what comes, even the end of all things, 
If you belong to Christ, you've been marked out by Him. It doesn't mean there's some literal mark on your forehead. It means that you've been marked out by God. This one is mine. So when judgment comes, they're going to be spared. Even when terrifying judgment comes, they're going to be spared. It's why we sing as we do at the end of the song, it is well, that we've sung this morning. Lord, haste the day when the faith shall be sight, the clouds will be rolled back as a scroll, the trump shall resound, and the Lord shall descend. This is terrifying, isn't it? Even so, it is well with my soul. Why? In the midst of that terrifying picture of the Lord coming to judge the earth, is it okay? Because I've been marked out, I've been sealed by God. This one is mine. I think this is showing the same reality using a different metaphor. When he measures out the temple, it's just to say, these are being marked out, they're protected by me. And yet that's not the whole picture, is it? There's another part, he says, don't measure it out. Don't measure the outer court. That's been designated to be handed over to the nation so that they'll trample it for 42 months. That is, I think, to send the similar message we see in Daniel. Just as in Daniel, this time period represents a restricted time period underneath God's sovereign control when the people of God will suffer and evil will seem to prevail. He's sending the same message here. That is to say, the church will be protected by God in this age, will be preserved and sealed till the end, but don't be deceived, we will be persecuted. Nor do I think the message here is that part of the church will be preserved and part of the church will be persecuted. I think these are simply showing two realities of the whole church. During this age, you can bank on these two realities. The church will be preserved by their God. We belong to the Lord. We've been bought with the blood of Christ and sealed by Him. And at the same time, don't be deceived, we will be persecuted. This describes this entire age. So if you want to know what to expect until Christ returns, expect that we'll be preserved by God, but also expect persecution. This is why Peter can say, don't be surprised by suffering that comes upon you. Why would you be surprised? Jesus told you it was coming. He said, if they persecuted me, they will persecute you. And yet sometimes we act, don't we, when, when the world speaks against us as if we're utterly shocked. How in the world could they? Well, Jesus told us in this age you'll be persecuted, but don't fear. I've preserved you. Though you walk through the fire, you'll not ultimately be burned up. Right? That's the message. So first we see in this text, I think, that the church will be protected by God and in this age will also be persecuted by the world. And yet there's a second message that seems contrasting or perhaps you might say seemingly contradictory as well, and it's this. The church will successfully preach the gospel to the nations and will face death. The church will successfully preach the gospel to the nations and will face death. If they've forgotten, I turned this way, and that symbol is that you're supposed to do number two. So you've done it well. That's very subtle so that nobody picks up on it until I announce it, right? The church will successfully preach the gospel to the nations and will face death. Starting in verse 3, you have this introduction of two witnesses. And I will grant authority to my two witnesses, and they will prophesy for 1,260 days clothed in sackcloth. Now, who in the world are these two guys? Well, first, just note that the messages, what these guys are doing is taking place during that same time period. If for 42 months the people of God are going to be trampled over and persecuted, during that same time something else is going to happen, isn't it? These two witnesses are going to be granting authority so that they go out and prophesy clothed in sackcloth. Well, sackcloth is an imagery of repentance. That is, these people are preaching repentance to the nations for the same time period, 1,260 days. I think it's saying during the same age when the church is being persecuted, something else is going to be happening as well. 
Well, who are these two witnesses? Well, I've already announced at the beginning, but I think this is yet another metaphor for the church, specifically the witnessing church. Now, let me give you a number of reasons, because perhaps this one's a little harder. You might say, I see temple imagery for the church in the Bible, but why two witnesses? You're in two men, and they're representative of the whole church. Let me give you a number of reasons, then, why I see it this way. Number one, there is a parallel between chapter 11 and chapter 13. There's a parallel. Now, let me point you to chapter Revelation, or Revelation chapter 11. I'll skip down a bit. Look at verse 7. I, I won't dive into the details of this yet, but let me just put this language in your head so that you can see the parallel later. These two witnesses were told of them in chapter 11, verse 7. And when they, that's the two witnesses, and when they have finished their testimony, the beast that rises from the bottomless pit will make war on them and conquer them and kill them, and their dead bodies will lie in the street of the great city that symbolically is called Sodom and Egypt, where their Lord was crucified. For three and a half days, some of the peoples and tribes and languages and nations will gaze at their dead bodies and refuse them to be placed in a tomb, and those who dwell on the earth which is always referenced in the book of Revelation to wicked men who oppose the Lord, those who dwell on the earth will rejoice over them and make merry and exchange presents because of the two prophets who have been a torment to those who dwell on the earth. So you see a number of elements here, right? The beast rises against the two witnesses, conquers them, kills them. Every tongue, tribe, people, and nation are there celebrating, and those who dwell on the earth rejoice over them. Well, look now at chapter 13, starting in verse 5, and you'll find a similar account. And the beast was given a mouth, chapter 13, verse 5, and the beast was given a mouth uttering haughty and blasphemous words, and it was allowed to exercise authority for 42 months, and it opened its mouth to utter blasphemies against God, blasphemy his name and his dwelling. Dwelling would be the temple, right? That is those who dwell in heaven, the people of God. Also, it was allowed to make war on the saints and conquer them. So now we have similar imagery. The beast making war on the saints, conquering them. Authority was given it over, now we have this element introduced, every tribe and people and language and nation. And, here's that phrase, that means wicked men, all who dwell on the earth will worship it. Everyone whose name has not been written in the foundation of the world in the book of life of the Lamb who was slain. So we have similar imagery. The beast who has control of the nations and of those who dwell on the earth, rising up, conquering, and killing, this time not the two witnesses, but who? The saints. So first, in the parallel text, the two witnesses are now replaced by, rep by, by reference to the saints. That's reason number one. Reason number two, I think the witnesses are the church, is because of verse four in our text. Right after uh, chapter 11, verse 3, right after saying, I'll grant the authority to my two witnesses now prophesy for 1,260 days clothed in sackcloth, in verse 4 we read, these are the two olive trees and the two lampstands that stand before the Lord of earth. Well, now what's difficult about this is that if you don't know who the two witnesses are, and then we're told they're the two lampstands and the two olive trees, and you don't know what in the world those are, it's not very helpful, is it? But we should know reference to this. Because these references come from the Old Testament. Specifically, they come from the book of Zechariah. And here's what's going on in the book of Zechariah. The people of God are given a mission. In this case, they were to restructure, rebuild the temple. And the message the Lord sent them through this imagery of a lampstand, John's changed the image just a little bit. He has now two lampstands. But through the imagery of a lampstand and two olive trees is this. 
The Lord was sending the message that I will accomplish my work through you. I will do it by my spirit. The idea is that if a lampstand is dependent on oil to burn, then here you have two olive trees that are consistently feeding this lampstand. The idea is even as the, lamp, the oil can flow from these olive trees into the lamp so that it's consistently able to burn, so I will supply my spirit to you so that you will complete the task. In fact, the conclusion of this imagery of the lampstand and the olive trees, we find it in Zechariah chapter 4, verse 6. And here's what the Lord says. Not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. That's his message. Well, I think the same message is being communicated here. The task that I've given for my people, the task that falls to the church, that is the Great Commission. The Lord is saying, I'm going to accomplish it by my spirit through you. That's reason number two. I think the witnesses represent the church, and most specifically, the church in its task of witnessing. Number three, earlier in the book of Revelation, we've already seen the lampstand used as a metaphor for the church, right? Remember chapters two and three, he writes these letters to the church and he threatens them on occasion. Uh, if you do not repent, I will come and remove your lampstand. That is all, I'll make you no longer a church. Because to be a church means to be a lampstand. Perhaps it's symbolic of giving off light to the world, I don't know. But nonetheless, the lamp has already been used as a metaphor for the church. So here we're told the two witnesses are the two lampstands. I think the idea is that we're the church. The fourth reason, I know I'm given a lot of reasons here, but it seems weird, two witnesses, so that's why. There are other texts in the Bible where these same kind of ideas are conveyed, and what's explicitly mentioned is the church witnessing during this time. So let me give you an example of this. Turn to Mark chapter 13. Turn to Mark chapter 13. Now we've already seen throughout the book of Revelation to this point, the Lord has sent the message in this age there's going to be famine and earthquakes and wars and nations rising against nations and conquering them. There's going to be civil bloodshed and unrest among civilization, right? On and on and on. There's going to be death at every corner. Uh, so he's described this is the way this age will be. Well, when you go to Mark chapter 13, beginning in verse 8, we'll find this same teaching. In Revelation, this was shown through heavy symbols and imagery. In Mark 13, starting in verse 8, it's just told to us, straightforward. Jesus says in Mark 13, verse 8, For nation will rise against nation, and kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes in various places. There will be famines. These are the, but the beginning of birth pains. But be on your guard. For they will deliver you over to councils, and you'll be beaten in synagogues, and you'll stand before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them. Here's this idea of persecution we've already been shown even in this chapter, chapter 11 of Revelation. And the gospel must first be proclaimed to all the nations. When they bring you to trial and deliver you over, do not be anxious beforehand what you are to say, but say whatever's given you in that hour. For it's not you who speak, but the Holy Spirit. And brother will deliver up brother over to death. And father is child. And children will rise against parents and have them put to death. And you will be hated by all for my namesake. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. Do you see, in the middle of this text that tells us all of the truths we've seen so far in Revelation, earthquakes, famines, wars, rumors of wars, persecution, in the very middle of it, Jesus says, in this age, through all of this, you know what the church is going to be doing? Taking the gospel to the nations. I think Revelation chapter 11, starting in verse 3, is sending the same message. 
in the midst of being trampled over by the nations. During that same time period, Jesus is saying, don't be confused. There will be a witnessing church. We will be taking the gospel. A fifth and final reason why I think the two witnesses are simply a metaphor for the church and not literally two people is that if you took them literally, they seem like Moses and Elijah. Right, look at verses 5 and 6. We've already read verse 4, the, the two olive trees and the two lampstands. Look at verses 5 and 6. If anyone would harm them, fire pours from their mouth and consumes their foes. If anyone would harm them, this is how he's doomed to be killed. They have the power to shut the sky that no rain may fall during the days of their prophesying. They have power over the waters to turn them into blood and to strike the earth with every kind of plague as often as they desire. Now, if you know your Bibles well, you read this, you're not thinking, well, that's interesting. You're thinking to yourself, that sounds like Moses and Elijah. I mean, it was Elijah in 2 Kings chapter 1 who caused down fire from heaven to consume his enemies, and they're consumed. It was Elijah who prayed that the Lord would send no rain for three years, and it didn't rain. It was Moses who, by the power of the Spirit, was able to turn the water into blood, right? It's, it's through Moses as the Lord uh, worked in the setting of Moses going to Egypt that all kinds of plagues were brought on the earth. So is the message then that these two witnesses must be Elijah and must be Moses. No, there was prophecy of Elijah coming, right? But if you believe Jesus, and we should, he said that Elijah's already come through John the Baptist. So I don't think we're to see these two witnesses as two literal people, and maybe even specifically as Moses and Elijah. I think the message is, just as in the days of Moses and Elijah, just as the task that the Lord gave them, the Lord made sure they were able to do it by empowering them in amazing ways. So the message is, the Lord will equip His church to carry out the Great Commission. That is to say, yes, during this age, there will be persecution. In fact, there will be persecution that kills. Verse 7 of this chapter says, And when they have finished their testimony, the beast that rises from the bottomless pit will make war on them and conquer them and kill them. During this age, the church will be killed. Again and again and again. People will go out and they're going to be slaughtered and murdered brutally. And it has happened ever since the ascension of Christ. It just happened. All of the apostles, except John, tradition tells us, they were martyred. There are stories, I made reference to them uh, even just a couple of weeks ago, of, of individuals having molten lead poured down their throats. Of, of women being brutally murdered, of, of, of persecutors of the church who say, you want to profess faith by being immersed in water? Well, fine, let's drown you. Or you say that you love Christ even above your families? Well, let's see then if you'll keep holding your confession to Christ while we brutally murder your children in front of your very eyes. And you know what the church has done in the face of that persecution? They have gone forth with the gospel and preached, and preached, and preached. When the world has every reason to think, we've finally done something to shut them up and silence them. The church has only grown more bold in her witness. This is why Tertullian said, one of the early church fathers, it's as if the blood of the martyrs is merely the seed of the church. You spill our blood, it's like you just planted a seed of the church in the ground, and it will sprout. Remember the story Tom made reference to about 
one of his friends, a, a missionary in a, a Romania, Joseph Son, who was, who was arrested and they were told, we can kill you. And Son's response was, you may kill me, but you know this. If you kill me, people are going to know that I was willing to die for this cause. And the words that I have spoken, they will spread like wildfire. So you use whatever weapon you want. Your weapon is whatever you're going to use to kill me. My weapon is my life. As Tom finishes the story, if you're going to use yours, I'll be forced to use mine. But what Joseph Son was saying is exactly right. You shed our blood. People are going to know the words we have spoken, we're willing to die for. And so in this age that is filled with persecution, the message is the people of God are going to be able to go forward and nothing is going to stop our task. Nothing is going to stop us from preaching the gospel to all the nations. Nothing ever has stopped the church and nothing ever will. The gates of hell will not, uh, will not prevail over the church. Yes, I, I don't think we're to literally take this that when our enemies come to us, we're going to speak fire and it's going to consume them. But the message is, nothing can stop us. The church will succeed. We will successfully preach the gospel to the nations, even as we face death. A third reality, then, concerning the church. The church will be mocked in this age and vindicated in the end. You see, again, the contrasting realities. We're going to be mocked, belittled in this age, we will be vindicated in the end. Starting verse 7 and running through verse 10, we read, And when they have finished their testimony, that is, as we're completing the task, right? Nothing's going to stop it. We're going to finish. And when they finish their testimony, the beast that rises from the bottomless pit will make war on them and conquer them and kill them. I think that's representative of the entire age. The beast is consistently slaughtering the people of God. Sometimes it's through Nero, as he wipes out Peter and Paul. Sometimes it's through other emperors. Sometimes it's just through enemies. But nonetheless, it will conquer them and kill them, verse 8, and their dead bodies will lie in the street of the great city that symbolically is called Sodom and Egypt, where their Lord was crucified. For three and a half days, some of the peoples and tribes and languages and nations will gaze at their dead bodies and refuse to let them be placed in the tomb. And those who dwell on the earth will rejoice over them and make merry and exchange presents because these two prophets had been a torment to those who dwell on the earth. Now, you clearly see here then the symbolism. These two witnesses that I think represent the church in this component of witnessing, spreading the, the, the gospel to the nations. These two witnesses are murdered. And they're murdered in the great city. Now we're told this is symbolic, right? Uh, verse 8, uh, yeah, verse 8. Uh, their, their dead bodies will lie in the street of the great city that's symbolically called Sodom and Egypt where their Lord was crucified. I don't think they were to think of here as some literal city. I think this city is just representative of God's enemies. If you have on the one hand God's people, the holy city, here the great city then is the city of man, the city of God's enemy in war with the people of God. The reason I think it's symbolically called Sodom and Egypt or the place where the Lord was crucified is because he's just using these imageries of other literal cities where great evil has taken place. So Sodom then represents uh, great debauchery, doesn't it? People of God rebelling against him specifically in sexual sin, but many other ways as well. Egypt is, is used consistently as an enemy of God. They, they bound the Lord's people, enslaved them, and persecuted them. 
Jerusalem and its darkest day crucify the Lord of glory. So like John is just grabbing this imagery. This great city, people in the rebellion against God will be like Sodom and Egypt and Jerusalem. Which practiced debauchery and persecution of the people of God and even took uh, the Lord of glory and put him to death. Right? So in this great city then, these two witnesses are killed and they're left to lie in the streets. Now, throughout the ages, this has always been true. Uh, I think it's uh, perhaps even more true in the time in which the text was written. To murder somebody and leave their body just lying in the street is, is just not to honor them. It's to dishonor them. Remember uh, in the Old Testament when Saul was killed? And, and they just left his body out there exposed. And the, and the people of God were so upset that they, they went and got him and brought him down and, and took care of his body. Why? Because, because they were dishonoring him by just leaving him there exposed as if they were saying, look how we've triumphed over your king. When the same way these two witnesses are, are killed and and left in the streets. And all the nations, all the peoples of the earth, from all over the earth, they, they mock them, they belittle them, they celebrate this. John says they're even giving presents. He says, like, it's Christmas time. Let's celebrate. These two witnesses are dead. Their bodies here lying in the streets. Well, why? Because they tormented them, the text says. As these two witnesses went forth proclaiming the truth, the testimony of Jesus Christ, it tormented their enemies. Why? Because their enemies were constantly being told, you're under the judgment of God, and unless you repent, you'll face His judgment. But the good news is you can repent, and they didn't want to hear that message. They didn't want to hear the good news, and so they slaughtered them. The message I think here is this. Throughout this entire age, the church of God will be persecuted, and when we're persecuted, we may even be killed. And when we're killed, we will be mocked and celebrated over. It will be a time period in which it feels like evil is having its day, where it seems like Satan and sin and death are triumphing. And, and if you want, you can simply read books of martyrdom, Fox's Book of Martyrs, you can read through that. The, the IMB has, has some videos about uh, missionaries being slaughtered, and when they are slaughtered, the enemies of God are mocking His people and belittling them. Sending the same message that those in the Old Testament said to Israel, where is your God now? Right, when Jim Elliot and others went to the Ak Indians, they were slaughtered. How many of the Lord's enemies looked at that and said, yeah, there's your missionary task, church. How worth it is it? You send these young people full of life with all their life in front of them and they go out to preach the gospel to people and those people kill them and they're saying to us, you church, you are idiots. You're foolish. And they're mocking us and standing over us and belittling us. That has happened throughout all the ages. That the people of God have been persecuted and beaten and killed and mocked and belittled. And that might fill this entire age but it's not going to be the last word. We will be vindicated in the end. Listen to how verse 11 begins. But after three and a half days, and what's interesting about that time reference is that you almost expect it to say three and a half years. That's what every other text says. For three and a half years, they're persecuted. For 42 months, 1,260 days, whatever. But for three and a half years, they're persecuted. For three and a half years, this happens and this happens. But after three and a half days, why, why, why shorten it to days here? I think because he's sending the message that in light of our eternal vindication, the mocking and belittling we receive in this world is hardly anything. 
But after the three and a half days, a breath of life from God entered them. And they stood up on their feet in great fear fell on those who saw them. Then they heard a cloud, a loud voice from heaven saying to them, Come up here. And, notice this last part, and they went up to heaven in a cloud and their enemies watched them. Why does he add that? Clearly a picture of resurrection. The breath comes back in, they ascend to heaven, and their enemies watched them. Why include that in this text? I think because it completely counters the mocking and belittling. Why would they leave their bodies to be unburied, to be lying in the streets dead? Because they want to say, look what we did. Look, watch what we've done. You know what Jesus says? In this age, the enemies of God may look upon the slaughtered people of God and watch them in their mockery and watch them as they are belittled. But when they are raised from the dead, my enemies will watch them. You see, even as Jesus Christ was hanging there on a cross, as Michael prayed earlier, drowning in His own blood, and they mocked Him and belittled Him and looked upon Him and considered that He was stricken by God. So in the midst of all the people, God the Father raises up Jesus Christ from the dead so that He walks the earth for 40 days and then raises Him to heaven in a cloud declaring, this is my righteous Son. Look upon Him. Watch Him, all His enemies. And one day, when He returns from heaven, clearly as the reigning Son of God, they will watch Him again. But not simply Him, on that day even God's people will be vindicated. The church will be mocked in the sage, but will be vindicated in the end. And now finally, a message about the unbelieving world. The unbelieving world that denies that Christ is Lord will one day bow the knee and confess that He is Lord of Lords. The unbelieving world that denies that Christ is Lord will one day bow the knee and confess that He is Lord of Lords. Starting in verse 13, then we're moving here towards the scene of final judgment. And at that hour, there was a great earthquake, and a tenth of the city fell. Seven thousand people were killed in the earthquake, and the rest were terrified and gave glory to the God of heaven. I don't think this is suggesting part of the world will be judged and part of the unbelieving world will glorify, glorify God and be terrified. I think it's doing the same thing we saw at the beginning. Remember, it looked like part of the church was measured out and protected, part of the church would be persecuted, but the, but the message really was all the church is protected. All the church is persecuted. Just showing two elements of the church that's true of the whole church. I think the same thing is here. The whole of the unbelieving world, though it's shown in two parts, the whole of the unbelieving world, two facets, two things will happen to them. They're going to be judged by God and they're going to bow the knee and glorify God. I think this is Philippians chapter 2, right? God has given him a name above every day, name so that at the name of Jesus every knee shall bow on the earth and above the earth and under the earth and confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. This doesn't mean everyone will be saved in the end. It does mean even those who are going to be cast into hell will bow the knee and confess Jesus Christ is Lord. And why? Because Jesus Christ, in this age, He reigns as King 
but he allows his enemies to resist him. But there's going to come a day where there will be no more resistance. We read of that great day in the final verses. I'll just read it to you, the rest of the chapter, starting in verse 14. The second woe has passed. Behold, the third woe is soon to come. Then the seventh angel blew his trumpet. This is what we're singing about when we sing, It is well, Lord, haste the day when the trump shall resound, when this final trumpet is blown, and this is the end of all things. And there were loud voices in heaven saying, The kingdom of this world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of His Christ, and He shall reign forever and ever. That is, in this age, the Lord allowed the resistance of Satan. He allowed the resistance of sin. He allowed the resistance of death. He allowed the resistance of all His enemies so that they might pretend like they are kings. And they do. But there's going to come a day when the trumpet's blown and the kingdom of this world kingdom that's reigned over by God's enemies will become the kingdom of our Lord and of His Christ where He allows no more resistance. And the 24 elders, here's their response. The 24 elders who sit on the thrones before God fell on their faces and worshipped saying, We give thanks to You, Lord God Almighty, who was and who is, for You have taken Your great power and begun to reign. Again, not as if You didn't reign before, but now You reign and You've put to rest all Your enemies. You have begun to reign. The nations raged. They did throughout the entire age. They raged and mocked and belittled and killed. But your wrath came. And the time for the dead to be judged and for the rewarding of your servants, the prophets and saints, and those who fear your great name, both great and small, and for destroying the destroyers of the earth. There's going to come a day when the books are going to be balanced and the wicked will be judged and God's servants will be rewarded with eternal life. And then John tells us, and then it happened. Then God's temple in heaven was opened and the Ark of the Covenant was seen within His temple that is God's now coming to dwell with His people forever. And then there were flashes of lightnings, rumblings, peals of thunder, an earthquake and heavy hail. All images used in this book for final judgment. The message, I think, of this chapter is clear. It's the same message that just resounds throughout the book as a whole. And here it is. Either you will identify yourself with and bear the mark of the Lamb. Or you will identify yourself with and bear the mark of His enemies, the beast. But know this. If you follow the Lamb and you say, I'm with Him, I'm going to obey Him, I'm going to testify that the Lamb is my Lord, then know this you're going to bear the wrath of the beast in this age. You're going to bear all kinds of persecution. You're going to be mocked and belittled, but you're going to be preserved by God. You're going to be vindicated in the end. You're going to successfully complete the task He has for you. David Livingston, a missionary, was famous for saying something like, every man is immortal until he's finished the task God has given him. That's true. What God has before the foundation of the world, declared that you're going to do, you're immortal till that day. Now when this task is completed, phew. so the lamb, you follow him, you're going to bear the persecution of the beast. So then you could say, well then I'll deny the lamb, and I'll follow the beast. I'll follow Christ's enemies. And throughout this life, it could be great. I could escape persecution. I could escape mocking. I could escape belittling. Those who are being drowned because they're professing their faith in baptism. That won't be me. And, and there's truth to that. 
You identify yourself with His enemies and deny the Lamb, and you can avoid much persecution in this age, in this life, in this world. But in the end, you will bear the wrath of the Lamb. And I'll tell you, this is the message of the book. You do not want to bear the wrath of the Lamb. You don't want to bear it. It's more terrible than anything you can imagine. The reason we hold up the gospel so consistently, even on Sunday mornings, is for a number of reasons. Christians, we desperately need the gospel. Another reason, though, is because if you don't know Christ, you're in a terrible position. The scriptures picture Jesus Christ on the final day throwing his enemies into a lake of fire where they will suffer eternal punishment. Merciless judgment forever is the wrath of the Lamb. But the good news is this. If you'll repent of your rebellion against Jesus Christ, repent of your sins and place your faith in Him, understanding that He lived a perfect life, died to pay for your sins, and was raised on the third day, you can have eternal life. I plead with you. If you're an unbeliever this morning, if you're a child and can understand what I'm saying, I plead with you. Place your faith in Jesus Christ. And then come profess your faith in baptism. And when you do it, it's fitting we have a cross back here. Because when you do it, know you're saying this. I'm following Christ, which means I'm taking up the cross. And it may cost me my life, but it's worth it. If you are a believer this morning, you've been baptized once, you shouldn't be baptized again. But if you've already professed your faith, then we get to come to the table week after week after week making the same profession. My identity is with the Lamb. He's mine. I may be a persecution, but Christ is mine. His body and His blood was given for me and shed for me. So we're going to take a moment of silence this morning. And then we invite all of you who are, who are uh, believers in good standing with a, an evangelical church, would you, would you join us as we distribute the bread and distribute the cup? And you can eat of the bread and drink from the cup as we do it together, declaring our identity is with the Lamb, knowing we may go out into a world that will persecute us. But we'll be preserved and protected and vindicated in the end. Just as the one who raised Christ from the dead will raise us as well. So let's take a moment of silence now as we prepare to come to the table this morning.